Welcome to Wine for Normal People, the podcast for people who like wine, but not the snobbery that goes with it. I'm your host, Elizabeth Schneider, author of the Wine for Normal People book and certified wine dork. And I'm MC Ice, just a wine-loving normal person. You know where I had the first Armenian wine I'd ever tasted? From Wine Access. Wine Access carries wines that you can't get anywhere else. They will open your mind and your cellar to all sorts of things that you never knew were out there. Go to wineaccess.com slash WFMP. Check out a page of my picks or join my wine club. This year, there's going to be some amazing selections. Wineaccess.com slash normal. In this show, we are going to delve into the world of Armenian wine. I welcome Kush Managing Director and Zulal founder, Amy Kushkarian. Amy is the daughter of Vahe Kushkarian, an Armenian raised in Lebanon, who got into wine in Italy and Tuscany, where Amy grew up, before becoming a major player in the current resurgence of the Armenian wine industry. Amy joins today to educate us on Armenian wine, tell us about the projects she and her family are undertaking to shape the modern Armenian wine industry, which is definitely getting noticed for its high quality and interest in grape varieties. There is so much to cover, so let's jump right in. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's just start out with your background and how you came to work in the world of Armenian wine. I was living in Washington, D.C. right after graduating from college, and Vahe invited me to participate in my first Harvest for Kush. I was, I was on track to work for multinational development institutions. I was passionate about developing rural economies through social entrepreneurship. And he said that I could do that by working in the wine industry here and revitalize depressed wine growing villages. So, so after I visited Armenia that fall, like I knew that I wanted to be part of rebuilding our wine industry. I like the fact that the wine industry has three dimensions. First, it's, it's an agricultural product. Second, it's a, it's a craft. And third, it's, it's part of the global wine trade. But even more so, having the opportunity to be part of rebuilding the Armenian wine industry, I, I couldn't really say no. So there was, it seemed to be an added dimension of adventure. So I moved, I, my first harvest was 2015, and then I, I moved to Armenia in 2016, that winter. Can you tell your backstory a little bit, just because it's super interesting about where you grew up and a little bit about your dad also, because you are Armenian. That's an important part of this too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm a diasporan Armenian. I was born in San Francisco, had my first birthday in Tuscany, and and Vahe, we, we had a winery in Tuscany and in Puglia. My mother is, is American, and she really wanted my brother and I to go to, to high school and college in the U.S. So then I went to high school in Maine, college in Massachusetts, lived in Washington, D.C. for a year. And Armenia was kind of a distant concept until I really started going and spending time there. I did birthright there. And then it just all kind of came together when my father invited me to do my first harvest. I didn't even know they had birthright. It, we were talking offline about how the Jewish community and the Armenian community are very, very similar. And we'll get into that now as we talk about some of the history. It really is such a bond we have. So for those of us who may not know, and nobody is going to judge anybody for this, can you tell us exactly where Armenia is, just so everybody knows what part of the world we're talking about? Yeah. So Armenia is located in the Caucasus region. We neighbor Georgia, Iran, Azerbaijan, and Turkey. We're in the highlands with, with impressive mountain ranges, and Yerevan is our capital city. Uh, we have five wine-growing regions, and they're all very high elevation. 
So the valley floor starts around 1,000 meters and the highest vineyards go up to 1,800 meters, which put them at some of the highest, if not highest vineyards in the Northern Hemisphere. Before we get into that, we are definitely going to talk about the terroir. I don't want anybody to think we're going to skip over that. Can you talk about the history of Armenian winemaking and how far it stretches back? Also, I would love for you to cover, because Georgia does claim that they're the oldest winemaking region, but I'm not sure about that. All right. So I'm going to let you tell the whole story about Armenian winemaking. I think people might not be aware because Georgia has done such an aggressive PR campaign. So go set the record straight, Amy. That's that's true. And they are completely different. So um, it is nice to bring up. Well, winemaking in Armenia is ancient. When you look at the birthplace of viticulture and the first records of winemaking, it was in Transcaucasia and soon after in Mesopotamia, which is where today's Armenia and Georgia are currently located. In in Armenia's Vyadzor region, there we have just a stone's throw away from our vineyards. For example, we have an archaeological site which has a winemaking facility that was radiocarbon dated to 4000 BC. So just to put things in perspective, it was during the Neolithic era where humans were making wine in, at the time, a complex way with amphora and basic planning of production. So that means that it must have taken, because of the rate of innovation, that must have taken about 1,000 to 2,000 years prior to get there. So it is very, very old. And in ancient times, Armenians were, we were wine merchants. In the times of empires, we made wine and sold it to the Babylonians, to the Sumerians. Armenians were an ancient empire. So yeah, we have a, we have a really long viticultural history, but uh, it was because of war and geopolitics, the Soviet Union, that only recently we started being part of what the modern global wine trade is today. Regarding Georgia and Armenia, um, that's always a <laughs> fun topic to cover. Uh, there is always this dispute, or rather Georgians like to compete with Armenia. No, I'm joking. Um, but I, I think this debate is, is a little silly, to be honest. Countries and statehood didn't exist at the time of the Neolithic era. But if you ask me, of course, Armenia is the oldest. We have completely, completely different histories in modern day winemaking, we have completely different grape varieties, different terroir from one another. Georgia has clay soil, more more moderate temperatures. Um, our styles of wine are very different. Our cuisine is different. So, so in general, we're just friendly neighbors. But really, you it's it's a, and it's funny when you take when you drive from Armenia to Georgia, it's like there was a line that was just drawn between the grassy rolling hills of Georgia and the high elevation mountains of Armenia. So it couldn't be physically more drastically different as well. It's interesting though because there's been stuff that's carbon dated in Georgia, and I'm sure it'll be found in Armenia too, back to eight thousand years ago. And what is very interesting now is that Armenia is claiming its rightful place. And you're right, there were no territories, there were no boundaries. We also really don't know how old winemaking is. I think that's the other thing that China has some stuff from 10,000 years ago, but not everything has been discovered also in places in Armenia or Georgia either. So we don't know. Yeah. And it's always very fun to debate. It is. Okay. So a little bit more serious though, can you talk about the more modern history of Armenia And I really do want people to understand how events like the 1915 genocide, the takeover by the Soviets in the 1920s affected the Armenian people, and then also the wine industry. I made a reference earlier about how Jews and Armenians have a lot in common, and oftentimes the genocide of Armenians is called the first genocide, and obviously the Holocaust is the second. And there are a lot of, I don't mean to get too heavy, but there are, there's evidence that people passed around books from how to survive genocide from Armenians in concentration camps in Nazi Germany. So there is this, this parallel. Can you talk about this kind of more sad event? 
Yeah, of course. And I think I think the term genocide was coined regarding the Armenian genocide as well. So there's a lot of history there. Um, but but the 1915 genocide affected our modern history completely because it it displaced and killed millions of Armenians. And when when the Soviets took over in the 1920s, the wine industry fell subject to Soviet rule and production standards. So it was it was a planned economy. So every country within the union was designated a different production site. Georgia was the wine producing country and Armenia was the branding producing country. This is a little bit more significant in how our modern wine has been shaped. Armenia had some some small production facilities for local consumption in areas where it's too difficult to farm large scale vineyards for brandy because brandy was what we were supposed to produce and export for the union. So the vineyards and the winemaking culture was somewhat preserved in small areas. There was, for example, in Tavush up north, where they made bubbles called Champansky. Until legal, until recently, they were still putting Champansky on the label, and then Champagne came in, and the European Union said you're not allowed to put Champansky on the bottles anymore. Champagne is litigious. They will come after anybody that comes even close to Champagne. Do you know they went after Apple for calling their the color Champagne? They, That's they right. Made them stop using it. They did. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, their tra- their trademark policies are extremely strict. Um, so I'm not surprised that they came and, and said, okay, no more Champansky on the label. But we did produce, in quotes, Champansky in the northern region. And in Vyatzor, where Arany was made, and we think to originate from, there was still red still red wine made in Geta. But but vineyards in Armenia were, were planted and maintained for brandy production primarily. So the grapes were a little bit different than the grapes that we use right now for fine winemaking. And it was really for mass production because they were looking for a lot of production out of Armenia, right? Oh yeah, the vineyards were planted for large scale for yield versus quality. We had some hybrid grapes planted. It was really just for exactly for the masses. So going back to your story, what happened when your father, who was the happy Tuscan at this point, <laughs> came in 1997 and visited Armenia? Because something really changed and your whole life, both of your lives changed after that. Yeah. In 1997, we were living in Tuscany at the time and Vahe had an Italian professor at the local wine school say, Vahe, you know, you sh- should really go to Armenia. It has an ancient history of making wine and it's where it all, it all began. And it was very difficult to travel in and out of the Soviet Union. There were privileged elite that were allowed to travel on very restricted, with very strict uh, guidelines. So, so it was very difficult to travel in and out. When Armenia became an independent nation, Vahe could go back and, and visit. He visited all around. And when he landed in, in Vyadzor, he knew that there was something really special there. And he planted vineyards right now. Right away, he planted vineyards. Um, but, but the country wasn't really ready for a wine industry. So so he came back and forth every couple of years to check. But it wasn't until 2008 that he decided to move to Armenia. And that's where he met Eduardo Renekian, who is an Armenian-Argentinian who was going to start a large-scale brandy project. And Bahia was like, are you sure? I mean, at the time, no one was making quality wine and <laughs> there were still, <laughs> still brandy, a lot of brandy being made. And he was like, are you sure you want to start this big brandy production? Um, there's a lot of potential for wine, but it needs to be restarted and we need to experiment with it. So they made six barrels, the first six barrels, and that's when Garas was born. And they planted 50 hectares every year, 50 hectares, 50 hectares, and they became a large-scale project. It's a Michel Roland project, and it was the first large-scale modern-day winery to make quality wine and say, hey, look, Armenia has great terroir. Say the name of the winery again. Garas. 
which is what how we say amphora in Armenian. Oh, I did not know that. So Kush started in 2013. And you also wound up starting your own project. So can you talk about the more modern history? I mean, Kush is now available. I went to a champagne bar the other day or a sparkling wine bar and Kush was on the menu. So obviously you're getting distribution, you're getting out here. So what's going on? How did that project start? And tell us more about it. I think Vahe has always kind of liked pushing boundaries and he decided to open up his own facility to start exploring Armenian indigenous grapes. And the country was making really bad wine in the 90s and it lacked infrastructure and know-how, but it had these beautiful vineyards and excellent terroir. Some of the vineyards were planted before Soviet times. Our vineyards for Kirsch are 120 years old, ungrafted bush vines. Um, and most of the valley has 40, 50, 60 year old vines. So we didn't start from scratch. The vineyards were Soviet planted. They were mostly Areni and Boskehat, which are which are noble Armenian grapes situated in volcanic soil. And so we had a beautiful terroir to sort of rediscover. When he started living in Armenia, he started importing winery equipment, representing Boucher and Aveneta, Diamcorks. He's one of the few Armenians in the world that have this breadth of knowledge and experience in the industry for 30 years, from making wine in Tuscany and in Puglia, in Australia. He had a top restaurant in the Bay Area. So he was involved in many aspects of the industry because it was kind of uh, needed and there was demand for it. People wanted to plant new vineyards, but we didn't have any nurseries. So he started a vineyard nursery to propagate new plants. So he did a lot, creating infrastructure, let's say. It's a lot of dedication. It's a lot, you know, but but it, it kind of happened naturally, I guess. I mean, there was just a need and he kept filling it and filling it and filling it. So then how did you get involved in the business? I mean, you're quite young, so it's amazing that you have done as much as you have so far. Yeah, well, it's always a little bit of a privilege to work for your family in wine. You learn a lot. You get given a lot of responsibility early on and you're, you are brought up in the wine culture. So um, in that sense, I feel I feel very fortunate. But when I when I moved to Armenia, I started working for Kush with my father, which is our traditional method, sparkling wine. A few years later, I noticed that most of the industry, uh, there were, I think at the time, only 30 brands making wine. We're making wine from just Arani and Voskehat, our white grape. But we have historically more than 500 indigenous grapes, and we could find currently about 40, 50 of them. But they were mostly being blended. So I got really excited about experimenting with our rare and almost lost grapes, such as Tozot, Grandemak, Karmirgot, Chilar. We have all these incredible grapes. And that's where I got the idea for Zulal. I work with a grape geneticist. We go into vineyards and identify and hand select varieties. We try to make a new wine from new grape that no one has made single varietal yet to really start understanding the potential outside of, of Arini and Bosquehat. And with that, it's just, it's been a wonderful adventure and we keep doing really new, new fun things and pushing our knowledge every year. So it's, it's great. You do also make Arini because I did have it and it was amazing. So it's just crazy that even though so this is a new project. The quality of the wine is so high. I'm so excited to see the other things that you come out with because as I tasted through the line and even including your father's line, that was the one that I was like, wow, this is really, really special. So you have a lot of talent, my friends. It's, it's a spectacular wine, even though I had the most pedestrian of all of them. I'm sorry. <laughs> Although, of no. course, for, for Americans, it's not very pedestrian. So like what's happening now? I mean, and again, I don't want to bring up Georgia, but I do think it's a good reference point. Are people traditional? Are they looking at new ways? Are they, I mean, it's ancient. So are there ancient ways? I mean, Georgia has really stuck very closely to their tradition. Is Armenia like that? Or 
Is it changing? And then also, is it hard to find winemaking talent to make all of this happen? Or are people really excited to do it? So so as an industry, we are very different from our neighbors in Georgia, who tended to kept a little bit of a traditional winemaking style and technique. We are transitioning our vineyards also from Soviet planted, but we're focused on modern technology, putting in drip irrigation, embracing biodynamics. In terms of winemaking, we all have modern equipment and technology. There is some experimentation with amphora, but orange wine and amphora is nothing in terms of defining the direction of our winemaking style. Is we, we focus very much on clean, expressive wines. Aging for reds is usually done in barrels, and we have some really nice barrel-fermented white wines as well. A lot of stainless steel tank to express the fruit purity. So really, really different, and that's kind of the direction that, that we're going in. It's still very hard to find talent. Vahe and I say this all the time that Armenians are traditionally winemakers. We're jewelers, dentists, doctors, anything that doesn't require land. But now, but now that we have our own country and territory, we're becoming winemakers. And we have young professionals who are getting their WSET certificates, studying winemaking, doing stage abroad. But it still takes a lot of time to develop local talent. Absolutely. It probably is a prime place. If anybody is listening to this and you're looking for internships, I know people are always trying to go to California. This could be a really great place to do it. If you're in an enology school, that's probably a great place to learn and have hands-on experience. What about selling into the international? market. Are people really excited about the story? And I don't mean to bring up a competitor, but like Paul Hobbs got involved in Armenia. I wonder if that helped or did that not help? I mean, what do you think? Yeah, it's it's definitely been a hard sell for international wines in the inter- international market. But all new wine regions kind of Greeks had their had their difficulty. Croatian wines, you know, this it's kind of we're fo- we're following in some footsteps like that. We are a new or let's say rediscovered wine region with grapes that no one has heard of. But international winemakers like Paul's Hobbs coming in definitely helps. It brings awareness. But most important, he sort of having a project in Armenia, he sort of brought an international stamp of approval for the quality of our soil, of our grapes, and and the potential to make great wine. So yeah, absolutely. I think people are often happy to have him do projects because he does bring that credibility, which is really important. As I said at the beginning of the show, the first time I had an Armenian wine was when I ordered one from Wine Access. And I know a lot of you did too, because I shared that little secret with a bunch of you. It was an Arani and it was spicy and it was delicious and really sparked my interest in Armenian wine. And I did not know that this big movement was happening. But what I do know is that I often look on Wine Access for ideas about what the next really cool region is. I have gotten leads on so many amazing wines. There's some great stuff out of Australia, stuff out of France that you might not see, or Italy. I've learned about so many great producers from Wine Access. You need to go to wineaccess.com slash normal and join my wine club, because one of the other things that we are doing is we are trying to introduce new and very cool wines in the wine club, because this crew, you who are listening to the show, are dedicated to learning about new wines. And we can't just do run-of-the-mill stuff. We have to give you something special and different. The Armenian wines are part of that, but they also have the best examples of classic regions. Their team really do find the best wines at the best prices. These small family-owned producers in many cases, some of them are iconic. Whatever they are, they make sure that the wines are 
are great quality. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to Wine Access, wineaccess.com slash normal, and you're going to join my wine club. Six bottles, $150. Shipping is included. You'll pay the tax. You will get these shipments four times a year. Great wine guaranteed to your door. Also, check out the site and let them know that you found them through me by going to wineaccess.com slash WFMP, which has a page of the wines that I'm loving right now. Do it today. Also, don't forget wineformnormalpeople.com slash classes. I'm offering a bunch of new classes. Wines of France is being offered. The Whites of Italy in the European and EU time zone. Friendly time is also coming up and always and more and more. And also make sure that you join Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Wine for Normal People. That's the only way you'll be able to access the back catalog of Wine for Normal People. So join today, patreon.com slash Wine for Normal People. Now let's get back to this awesome show with Amy Kushgarian. Okay, so let's move on to the basics of Armenian wine because I think people don't know what the grapes are and about the terroir. And I, I'm going to ask you to say all of this very slowly because we have to cure it and then we have to be able to pronounce it. Tell us what the main grapes are in Armenia. You've already mentioned some of them, but say them slowly. And the types of wines that are made. Are we talking about sweet wines, dry wines, sparkling? And what do we look for on the bottle? So should we be looking for grape names? Should we be looking for region? What's the convention? Maybe get first to the what we look for on the label and then talk about the main grapes. Great. Okay. So so definitely Arini is what's going to stand out. Um, and that, that is our, our, our main red grape. Um, and you'll find Vyatsod for as a region in terms of quality production. Um, but so, so the main red grape is Arini, which is a thick-skinned, tight-clustered Vitis finifera that grows mostly in Vyatsur. So you'll find Vyatsur on the label. And this is where you'll find most amount of high-quality vineyards growing this grape. You can find villages such as Agafnadzor, Rind, okay. Chiva, Getap, Khachik is where we, we make our traditional method. For white grapes, we have Boskehat. Boskehat, which is our, our most prominent and promising white grape variety. And it really provides a uh, nice structure and tends to carry a good balance of acidity and complexity. It's very versatile. We can make sparkling wine, still wine, and dessert wine all from the same grape in the same valley, which is really, really cool. What kind of like family is it in? You know, is it like Sauvignon Blanc? Is it like Chardonnay? What would you compare it to? It's not an aromatic grape, so I would say it's a little bit more like a Chardonnay. It's fun to compare the grapes, but really they have completely different characters and flavor profiles. But I would say a lot of people like to compare Chardonnay to the easiest and most lay in most lay terms is Bosquehat compared to a Chardonnay and an Arani compared to a Pinot Noir. Got it. So that's helpful. What other exciting grape varieties are there? Those are definitely the two that I have seen. Arani and Bosquehat are the two that you see most often. But are there others that you see emerging that you're excited about? I mean, you are working on the cutting edge of this. So let us know. Yeah, Tozot is a beautiful grape variety we found in Vyatsot as well. It's a little bit, uh, we compared a little bit to a Grenache. It produces a lot if you don't control the the pruning and the crop it likes to produce. So to get that concentration, you know, you have to work the vine a little bit, but it's a beautiful grape variety. Tozot means 
dust in dusty in Armenian. And when the, the grapes are ripe, it actually has this, this natural sun protection. It has this white dusty haze over this, the skin, we think to, to protect it from the sun. And that's a really, really fun, fun grape. We've made it a couple of years in a row because it's, it's proving to have some really nice potential. Chilar is another really fun white grape. And I would say it's up there in terms of promise with Voskehat as well. It has really nice structure. It, it likes oak, so you can barrel ferment it. And Garmidgot is another one that has a lot of potential. It means a red stem. And it has really, really bright red stems when ripe on the vine. So that's where the name comes from. It's also, it's also a really nice grape. Is it white or red? It's red. It's red. What kind of flavors does that produce? You get a lot of fruit forward, red fruits, but then it has a spicy, sort of these spicy, spicy peppery notes. And then you have this really elegant structure and and velvet finish. So it's a really elegant wine, but when you taste it on the, on the palate, it kind of has this unexpected structure, which is really nice. And it's a nice wine. So if we were to typify the grapes, we're not talking about stuff that is like Napa Cab or... Australian Shiraz, we are talking about mountain viticulture with lighter, I've noticed the reds definitely have a peppery note. The whites are citrusy and bright. So that's the end of things that we're looking at, right? I just want to give people an idea of if you buy an Armenian wine, you're not going to get something that's very heavy. Totally, totally. Yeah, you're not going to get a big Napa Cab with a huge amount of tannin and structure, but you are going to get a nice tannin and structure. It's just not going to be completely astringent on the palate, you know, so it's a nice kind of medium body. They sit kind of in the medium range. So you get that elegance and finesse, but then this little bit of muscle, which is nice. And not high alcohol. No, no, no. The the alcohol is max, you know, for the reds, you get 15, but really it's more about more around 14.5 and, and for the whites about 13, 13.5. Well, that's decent alcohol for the reds, definitely. But I guess mountain viticulture can produce high sugar levels also. So what about the terroir of the main regions and what people are planting on? Because there is some flat land and that's obviously easier to farm, or are people really going for it on the hillsides and picking up where some of these small vineyards are? I know you are personally, but in general, can you talk about the various areas for viticulture and what we can expect from each of them? And they will be on the bottle, right? Yes, yes. We have five main wine growing regions. Tavush in the north, that has mostly the white, white grapes and rolling hills. We have Armavir and Ararat Valley which were used mostly for brandy vineyards because they're flat and easy to work. We have Ashtarak, which is where the grape Boskehat is said to originate from. And then we have Vajotstor, which is where the most premium wines are made and top vineyards are being planted for high quality Adani. Vajotstor translates to Valley of Sorrow. The vineyard. Oh, no. I know. It's, it, I'm not sure why in history they, they named it. I mean, I have a, a couple of stories that I heard because it, it's a complete opposite, to be honest. It's, a, it's such a beautiful valley. And the vineyards sit on these small plateaus above the, this really impressive valley and canyon. They're south facing volcanic soil with tuf, basalt, and some limestone. And they're, they're producing some really, really nice quality wines in Vyatsor. Are there different sections of Vyatsor or is the terroir pretty uniform? You know, we're, we're still discovering this. What we found is that slight elevation changes 
will affect the sugar, of course. Um, but and, and now we're starting to understand different plots and different soil compositions, but we're still at the very, very beginning at understanding what's happening. We recently discovered that we have 19 clones of Arini, where, you know, we're really starting to understand the basics of, of what we have, but we are finding some village variations for sure. We can find this through aging of the wines. And when a lot of projects started in 2015 or 2017, we have the wines are still sort of young and babies. So we're we're now kind of understanding village to village how the soil changes, how the very small climates differ, uh, soil compositions and the and the degrees of slope. So it's um, yeah, definitely there is some difference, but we're just discovering that. I mean, you've got volcanic soils. Could you just briefly go over some of that? Because there's some unique things here that are not available elsewhere. Yeah, the volcanic soils are really are really incredible. We have so we have we break them down to sort of basalt and tuff, but we do get a, quite a bit of limestone in areas as well, specifically in our in our Kush vineyards. The high elevation is really what's exciting as well because you have these long growing seasons where your sugar doesn't develop as quickly, but you still get a lot of phenolic ripeness and maturity. And and with these with these drastic temperature changes where it gets to 100 degrees in the summer and the vines are buried in snow in the winter, you get a lot of weather variation. So so your grapes become really quite complex. And and these grape varieties, there there has to be something. The fact that humans cultivated the grapevine 8,000, 10,000 years ago in the valley and were able to grow vitis vinifera with no technology and made wine through just natural happenstance fermentation that happened in the bottle of, of, of an amphora means that there has to be something if this vitis vinifera grew as a natural weed in the region there has to be something special about our soil and climate and our terroir we just don't we know there's something there we're just now understanding what it is and i'm sure that with all the soil studies and all of the technology it couldn't have come at a better time when all of this is available and especially like, you know, with your father's connections in Italy, they're so good at soil studies and things like that. I think it's going to be really exciting to see what's discovered. How big is Vietstor? I don't know how many square kilometers because the valley is small compared to the entire region. But that's the most planted region of all of them. No, it's not. The, it's not the most planted. It's oh, it's the most not. Planted, okay. it's, it's the most planted for quality wine. The most planted would be in Armavida and Ararat for large-scale brandy production and those on flatlands. Vyadzot is small. Do you think that those areas that are for brandy production have potential to make premium wine? Or do you think that really, as we're looking at the evolution of Armenian wine, it's really in Vyadzot? I, I think all the wine-growing regions have potential if you have the right match with grapes and viticultural practices. But there is... I mean, having having vineyards on a slope with good drainage and higher elevation with degree variation is just going to add a little bit more to the complexity of the grapes than just having a flatland a little bit lower in elevation. So they're going to be definitely different in style. In terms of investment, is the government helping with investment or how is the industry growing? Is it individuals? And you talked about the genocide, but not about the diaspora. Can you just go back and talk about the diaspora? Because that is a really key part of this and potentially a way that you will wind up attracting more people back to the industry, right? Yes. So the, the government is very involved in the wine industry. We have a government foundation supporting the wine industry. They have created subsidy loan programs for planting new vineyards. The prime minister mentions the wine industry in all of his economic development speeches. It's a very visible industry 
where you can see wines on the shelves and the culture is being changed from Russian focused culture to having a newfound Armenian identity. So the wine industry has been incredibly important for the country's development. The first wave of winemakers in Armenia were diasporan. Can you explain what that means, what the diaspora means? So they were Armenians who, because of the genocide, their families moved to Western Europe or the U.S. or outside of the region because of the genocide. So they were displaced, which is what the diaspora means. And when Armenia became a new country, they repatriated back to Armenia where local Armenians lived during the Soviet Union. So we have two different groups of Armenians. You have the local Armenians and then you have the diaspora Armenians. And the diaspora Armenians, having grown up in Europe and the U.S., developed a wine culture. And so they came back to Armenia and they said there's so much potential to make wine. And so they started winemaking projects similar. My father is one of them. So the first sort of wave of winemakers in Armenia were diaspora Armenians. And then they were international acclaimed winemakers such as Paul Hobbs, Michel Roland. Uh, we have uh, Antonini, we have Schuler from Switzerland. And now it's becoming more business smart entrepreneurs who want to come and plant new vineyards and things like that. Although there are some Armenians throughout the world that have worked in the wine industry in their own right abroad and now are coming back also and, and doing some projects. So it's very dynamic. And it's really exciting to see that it's drawing people back to their roots and their land, and it's enough to bring people together. What are the biggest challenges in farming grapes in Armenia? I don't know if it's the terroir, if it is finding the grape plant matter. What is it? Yeah, well, um, I would say actually, I would say geopolitically. It's, it is quite challenging. Interesting. In our, yeah. In, in 2018, we had a successful nonviolent political revolution, which changed the ties with the Russian government and oligarchs and created good transparency. But in 2020, we had a second Nagorno-Karabakh war where our industry lost five major wineries, all of our oak forests to produce Caucasian oak barrels. We personally lost our own vineyard nurseries there. And we sit between Turkey and Azerbaijan, who are constantly causing conflict and threatening our territorial integrity. It's very challenging geopolitically and, and extremely high risk. Um, our, our vineyards for Kush, they were planted 120 years ago before the Soviet Union. And they were planted before the two military bases were built. So they actually sit, right now they sit between the two military bases, between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and they act like our border. We're in direct firing range when we stand in the vineyards. So it's it's uh, it's tricky at times. It's not uncommon historically to have vineyards act as borders. If you look at Champagne, if you look at Alsace, for example, vineyards have always been a line of defense because they have land value for the invading armies. So for us, we have um, and we have a major part of, of our vineyards that border the conflict zones. So it's incredibly important that we strengthen our border villages and um, and we really focus on the wine industry because great farmers and producers will stay and and defend their land. So so yeah, so quite a few challenges geopolitically, and then just moving from a Soviet style mindset of of having flood irrigation, um, you know, uh, production for 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 quantity over quality, transitioning grape growers from Soviet mentality to modern viticulture is is a little bit of a challenge. But in general, you know, we just, we work through them and, and we just keep moving forward, so. Do you have to have protection 
in the vineyards just in case? I mean, is there like a military presence of Armenians? It sounds a little scary, frankly. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is. Um, it is. I'm not sure how, you know, I grew up in the, I spent nine years in the U.S. and, and war is always a foreign concept because it's fought overseas. It's, you know, it's something that a lot of people don't really think about. I definitely feel danger at times. Um, there have been times that we need military clearance and we've been escorted by by military, but all of the grape farmers and the village, it's a village of a thousand people. Uh, most of them report to duty when needed in the military base. So um, so most of the grape farmers have fought in wars, have all have military training. So when, they're, when they work the vines and the vineyards, you know, the military base is right behind them. It's, it's risky for sure. It's yeah. a constant reminder and you have to always be aware of your surroundings, what's going on, and then read the paper a lot to make sure that nothing is going on currently, which is crazy. That's not something that I think most people think about as they're, I mean, you're studying in Burgundy right now. You never have to think about yeah. that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Let's face it. There's a lot of like warring families in Burgundy and they have lots of fights and break up and then they all have the same names, but that's pretty much the extent of it. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what has been the best part of this experience for you, for your family, and really for Armenia in general? It's, for me, it's been extremely rich in life experiences. I, I was there in 2018 during the revolution. I was there during the war. Um, I started my own wine brand. I, I got to work with my father for the last seven years, which is priceless. And for Armenia, the wine industry is, an, is incredibly, incredibly important. To be able to come back to Armenia and be a part of rebuilding the wine industry. It's not like me going to Champagne or Burgundy where everything's already developed. If my father was a Burgundy producer, I would come and things would be built already. So this dy dynamics and adventure of rebuilding a, a wine industry is just, it's been incredible. Yeah, I think you have to be a certain kind of person to embrace that as opposed to walking into a winery and everything is kind of there and you just have to learn how to use all of it, which is a very different concept for sure. And some of it has got to be on the job training too, right? Because what you're doing is different. The land is different and it's, it's just a whole uncharted territory, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, every, you know, the problems that arise are things that we have to solve are unexpected. There isn't a record of dealing with it. So every, you have to be very innovative on the fly things because of uh, the infrastructure and bureaucracy in Armenia and just the way that the country is sort of governed and learning how to be, because you're building an industry while the country is also building its government and learning how to be a country. It's only been a country for 30 years. So there's a lot, there's a big, we're all in a big, uh, we're all still kind of like in a startup phase as country and wine industry is what I would say, but with a lot of potential for growth. At least there's <laughs> excitement, right? Startups usually are great bastions for innovation and like people are motivated, which is terrific. Do you see that there is room for growth? I mean, what do you see for the future of Armenian wines as you look out the next 30 years? Yeah, I love this question because it's fun to envision and sort of think of the vision for a new wine region. But I mean, absolutely, there's right now we're making great wine. We we started we restarted our wine industry with Soviet planted vineyards. We didn't start from scratch with no vineyards planted. And we started with these beautiful indigenous grapes that don't grow anywhere else in the world. With this, we still have a lot to develop. We still don't have uh, PDOs and Appalachians. They still need to be assembled. Um, we'll probably see more of a focus on vineyard plot expression and small batch vinification towards more quality wines. 
Adani as a grape will reign supreme, but we'll see other grape varieties arise as well. The incredible thing is if if we're making this quality right now, this early on, in the next uh, 10, 15, 30 years, our wines will be world-class. I cannot believe how new the wineries are and how high the quality is. It speaks to both the talent and also to the quality of the grapes in general and the quality of the terroir. So I'm really excited about Armenian wine. I love it. I have not had a bad bottle. I think it's really amazing in an emerging region to do that. I have one other question. Cuisine. You mentioned cuisine really quickly. What is Armenian cuisine and what should we pair these wines with? Mm, Armenian cuisine is fun. Uh, we, we do have a separation between Eastern and Western. So Eastern is what developed locally in Armenia and Western is what developed in the diaspora communities, which is very similar to Lebanon, uh, Lebanese and Middle Eastern cuisines. We have hummus, mutaba, monti for this uh, sort of our own dumpling pasta. And locally in Armenia, we have a big focus on pickled vegetables. Chorovats is what we call our barbecue then we have rapama, our, our dish. We do have different dishes from different regions. Rapama is this rice dish cooked in a pumpkin. We have lori cheese, which is a cross, I would say, a cross between a feta and a cheddar. And that's wow. the, the most popular cheese that we have. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. And then we have lavash, which is our bread. And it's it's thinner, it's paper thin. It's like a paper thin pita bread. We do sort of meza style on the table where everything comes out and it's shared plates and it's very familial and we love getting together and um, sharing, well, now wine with our family and friends. So it's a very, very familial oriented. It's, it's great. And it sounds like the wines would go perfectly because they're medium bodied and they're lighter and they have got some spice in them. So all of that works really great. Well, Amy, thank you so much for coming on and educating us about Armenia, about the past and about the present and the future. I think that it's really important for people to know that this is evolving and changing. I think it's really important for them also to know that there are differences between Armenian wine and the rest of the emerging players that used to be part of the Soviet Union, because I do think that that's something that you have tried very hard. And all of the other Armenian wineries are trying very hard to show that this is a very specific pocket that's quite different. And you're doing something different. You're really embracing the new in the, the new styles. So thank you so much for coming on. I wish you the best. I hope that you come on again and keep us updated on what's going on with you because I think it's just an exciting time for you and your family and for Armenia in general. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And with that, this has been another episode of Wine for Normal People. Thank you so much for listening and we will catch you next time. 